Okay, welcome everyone to Drisha's spring program. And this is the third class of the third and final class of this session on Halachot of mental illness. In this class, we will explore the answer to the question, can we allow journaling on Shabbat for someone suffering from depression or borderline personality disorder? It is my pleasure to once again welcome Rav Yoni Rosenzweig to be with us. Rav Rosenzweig is a community rabbi in Beth Shemesh, a Ramat Midrashat Lindenbaum, and author of several books, and we are very happy to have him with us today. Thank you very much. Um, and I definitely want to generally thank um, Evie personally, but also Drisha in general um, for their hospitality and uh, for this uh, series. Uh, originally, they asked me if I could do three to seven classes. Um, I would have been happy to do seven classes, but uh, just uh, the timing um, was a bit difficult. Um, maybe sometime in the future, uh, we'll continue exploring mental health. I want to say uh, just briefly that I think it's it's really an important topic in and of itself. It's important, but what I really wanted to gain and what I'm trying to gain by giving these classes all over um, is to raise awareness for these topics. You know, I mean, I, I don't know uh, what your uh, social media feed looks like. Um, and probably we all live in a bubble, right? When it comes to our Facebook feed uh, or, or Instagram or Twitter, whatever it is that you're on. Um, but uh, my feeling is that these issues aren't talked about. You know, they aren't discussed. They aren't properly um, related to. And um, the plight, the pain, the suffering of those who uh, go through uh, mental illness and have mental disorders um, is is acute, is real, and it's just completely ignored. You know, and for me, that's that's the really the tough thing. That's really the sad thing. Um, and and these shurim are meant to help with that as much as they can. Uh, and the book that I that I wrote also, you know, meant to help with that as much as as much as I can do. So that that's the goal of this. And I really appreciate um, you joining me here and and uh, you know paying attention, listening, uh, participating. Uh, it's been a, a real pleasure in that sense. Not a, I wish we didn't have to talk about these things, but it was a pleasure in that sense and, and thank you very much. Um, okay, we're gonna, we, we, we're gonna talk today about um, something which uh, is a very difficult question. Uh, it came up to me uh, several times. Um, people like to, like, <laughs> would like is not correct. People need many times um, to journal on Shabbat or on Chag. Uh, in order to help with their, um, whatever it is that they're dealing with uh, mentally. And I don't know if this is like readily understandable to people when you first say it. It certainly isn't readily understandable to a rabbi, right? Who is used to hearing things that pretty much flow one from the other. So in other words, uh, rabbi, I'm giving birth. Can I go to the hospital and violate Shabbat in doing so? And the rabbi will be like, of course. Giving birth could be dangerous. You bleed when you give birth. You go through, your body goes through a trauma when you give birth. There are all kinds of things that I, as a rabbi, I understand that. You know, like I understand what we're talking about. I get it. Yeah. And I also get that a doctor in a hospital has the ability to care for these things to make sure that, uh, that you're okay, that you're healthy. I get why you want me as a rabbi to now allow you to do this action on Shabbat. I get it, I understand, yeah? Uh, you know, rabbi, I'm uh, very old and you know, I, I have heart issues or high blood pressure, do I have to fast on Yom Kippur? Once again, I understand the connection because someone explained it to me or because I can ask, between what you said and your request not to fast. I get it. There's a, there's a line there that I can easily make between those two things. But when someone says to me, uh, Rabbi, I'm suffering from anxiety or depression, uh, and what I need is to, is to journal on Shabbat, when it is to write things down on Shabbat. I'm like, how is that? I don't understand. Writing is is a medicine for depression what i i never heard that you can cure depression 
with a pencil. I'm, 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 I'm confused. Yeah, I'm confused what, what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah. So that's the problem is that many times we don't get it, right? Rabbis just don't understand what the connection between these two things are. And it takes some time to convince them that there is a connection. Once they understand the connection, it's much easier to talk about the topic. But it's, I just want you to kind of like feel, you know, the, the difficulty that the rabbi is faced with when these questions come uh, to him, all right? So he's like, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know what to do. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. Um, so therefore, uh, in order to, so, okay. So I wanted you to understand that there is a difficulty over there. I also want you to know that when it comes to uh, things like borderline personality disorder or depression or anxiety and the like, these are much more complex um, than the cases that I feel we spoke about in the past, you know, such as um, say eating disorders. Not that eating disorders are easy. <laughs> They're not easy to understand either, but I'm saying that there, for example, uh, the issue is quite focused and usually manifests in very specific ways. While depression is a very large spectrum and borderline personality disorder can be sometimes hard, hard to spot, hard to understand, hard to exactly pinpoint, um, and it manifests in different ways as well, right, for different people. So it's, it's not something that's like black and white. Some uh, disorders are more black and white than others, but some are, are very gray, right? And therefore, once again, the, the, the problem is, and I, when I spoke to some rabbis, they commented to me, you know, they said, look, it's not that I don't believe that mental illness is an illness. I believe it is. It's not that I don't believe that a rabbi needs to find lenient in the case of mental illness. I believe that too. But my problem is, I don't know how to identify it. How do I identify the difference between someone getting up in the morning and saying, oh, I'm so depressed from this whole Corona thing. You know, like I'm just at home every single day. And someone who's genuinely suffering from depression. Not just like saying that, like colloquially saying, oh yeah, I'm depressed. And like, I'm depressed. You're not depressed. You're okay. Yeah. That guy, the other guy, he's suffering from depression. That's like some, that, that's like real. So, but the rabbi says, how do I tell the difference between these things? It's so vague. And that's the problem is that once again, we don't know so much. We don't understand so much always how to tell the difference and how to be able to, to um, handle, right? From a halachic perspective. Uh, the cases that come before us. So I mentioned depression. It's true for anxiety as well. Anxiety can come in many different forms. It's true also for um, borderline personality disorder, you know, and uh, I think I mentioned, you know, um, one of my previous classes, you know, we have uh, here, one of the participants is a fellow named Mishulam Gottlieb. He knows all about per borderline personality disorder, I, I can tell you. Um, and he, uh, uh, he can tell you more than I can, but I can tell you a story that I can uh, about a woman who uh, has BPD um, and and what and a story that she told me. Okay, just to kind of like give you a little bit of a taste of sometimes you know what happens. Um, this woman um, suddenly, for no reason that she could, you know, she this is the story she told me, for no reason that she could really tell, something set her off uh, one Shabbos, and she decided to get into the car and drive. And she couldn't even pinpoint what it was uh, that set her off, but she's diagnosed with BPD. And um, she drove all the way to Machtesh Ramon. I don't know if you know where that is in Israel. Machtesh Ramon, it's the crater. It's like this big crater. Anyway, um, so she drove all the way uh, for like three hours, she drove um, for no reason that she could really tell. Just suddenly something, something snapped in her. And she drove all the way to Machtesh Ramon and she was gonna throw herself off the cliff. Um, and she said it was the weirdest thing. I mean, obviously she didn't do it because she was telling me the story, right? But she, it was the weirdest thing she said. She, she went up there and suddenly she saw people like tourists, you know, who were visiting there. And she said, oh, I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to throw myself off the, in front of people. It's, uh, it's, it's embarrassing <laughs> to do, you know, like she was, she was okay with throwing herself off the cliff if there was no one there, but otherwise it would be embarrassing. And then she said, you know, I actually need to go to the bathroom. And then she went into the, like it was a little touristy coffee place. She went in there, she sat down and the waitress who saw a religious, like she was dressed all religious, you know, she, she said like something's wrong here. 
So she, you know, she came to the, you know, to the person and she said, and, and she, she, like the woman, she ordered a coffee. So, she, you know, the, the waitress who understood there was something wrong here. So she said, you know, can I get you anything? Can I call anyone? Can I help you? And uh, through the kindness of that waitress, basically, and through a series of events, she stopped herself from killing herself. But as she told me many times, you know, you never know when something is going to happen, you know, and suddenly throw you into, you know, a, into a spiral. You know, sometimes she's a, sometimes she felt like she needed to hospitalize herself, you know, suddenly, and other times not. And it's just it's 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 impossible to know always, you know, what's going to happen. And it's that sort. I told you the story only to explain to you that it's that sort of um, erraticness that uh, leads rabbis to be dumbfounded and confused about what to do in these situations. So I'd like to kind of walk you through a little bit of how, um, how we think about these things halakhically in order to be able to answer such questions, okay? The first tool that the rabbi has to use, first of, first of all, he needs to be able to um, analyze the issue from a halachic perspective, okay? So what happens halachically? Halachically, I have to determine a few things. First of all, what's the status of writing on Shabbat? That's number one. Number two, writing today can take electronic form. In that case, I have to also figure out what's the status of writing on electronic, on, on electronic equipment, right? That is also another question that I have to ask myself. A third question, excuse me, that I have to ask myself is what's the status of using electricity on Shabbat? So the rabbi first has to answer for himself some halachic questions, okay? Some basic halachic questions in order to determine the status of the things that he's dealing with. Well, writing on Shabbat, as we all know, is a Torah prohibition, okay? It is definitely a Torah prohibition. It's definitely very, very severe. And if someone wanted to journal on Shabbat, they would be violating a Torah prohibition. And they could only do so on the face of it if they were in a life-threatening situation, pikuach nefesh, all right? Which is, in a sense, a high bar to reach. However, at this here as well, some have uh, invented this thing called a Shabbos ben. Have you ever seen one of these things? Uh, basically, the et Shabbat, Shabbos ben, is supposed to alleviate some of the halachic problems with writing. Uh, you could write with something that, basically what the Shabbos ben does is that the ink that, it, that, that you use, um, it vanishes after uh, 24 hours or less than 24 hours. And um, what, you, what you're supposed to do, of course, is rewrite, retrace whatever you wrote after Shabbat with a regular pen because the other ink is going to disappear. And that, that alleviates the stringency of the prohibition and uh, knocks it down to a Durabanan, to a rabbinic prohibition. So that's one sort of discussion that we can have. The other discussion is, as I said, about the use of electronic equipment. So writing on electronic equipment is a very interesting uh, discussion of itself. Is it considered writing? Is it all just, you know, something, it's, it's, it's what you can see, right? The screen shows you as if you've written, but actually it's just elect electrons being shot at the screen and showing you something akin to, you know, writing, but it's really not writing at all. Certainly when you close the computer, nothing has been on the face of it written, unless you consider what's on the disk to, be, to have been written, uh, whatever's left, whatever, um, uh, so to speak, um, Russian, right? Whatever's left over, so to speak, um, is, uh, is considered writing, which of course is a discussion in and of itself as well. But at the end of the day, um, many Poskim do believe that that writing, even if it does um, exist, is a rabbinic prohibition, if anything, meaning it won't be more than a rabbinic prohibition. And like I said, some people will say even less than that. So that's that's another piece of the puzzle that we need to know. The really big discussion here is electricity on Shabbos. Now, there's absolutely no way that even if I devoted this entire class to electricity, on, I, I could I could do so. I could do so with, um, you know, in a proper way, but uh, certainly if I'm only gonna spend five minutes on it. But let me try and give you a crash course in electricity on Shabbos, okay? like a really crash course. Uh, and here it is. 
Um, you have to, when looking at any uh, electrical appliance, you have to ask yourself two questions. Number one, what is the result? And number two, um, what is what is it essentially? So let me explain, okay? I'm not allowed to plant or reap or sow on Shabbat. If I use a tractor to do those things, right? if I do it electronically, does that change the fact that reaping and sowing and planting happened? No, it doesn't change that. Meaning if the result is prohibited, it does not matter if you did it electronically or otherwise, okay? The question of electricity doesn't matter when the result is a malacha. So if I uh, turned on an incandescent light bulb, it gets very hot. That, according to the Rambam and others, is, for example, mavir, it's lighting a fire because heating up a piece of metal, even if it's not an actual fire, heating up a piece of metal is an usr result, a prohibited result. The Chazon Ish, another example, felt that closing a circuit was building. So once again, the result is bone. The result is building, right? And dismantling the, uh, uh, like opening the circuit is like soter, is like uh, demolishing. So therefore, since the result is a, is a malacha, then as you can see, uh, uh, the issue will be a deal right. However, sometimes the result is not a malacha. Let's put aside the chazon ish for a minute, okay? Let's assume that there is no building, there's no bonnet in closing a circuit, okay? Let's say I turned on a fan on Shabbat, all right? Is blowing air a prohibition on Shabbat? As far as I know, it's fine, yeah? If I came up to your face and I just blew at it like this, right? It would be disgusting, and maybe you should report me for some sort of harassment. But besides that, you know, I don't think, I think you would agree, it is not a malacha. Yeah, like there's no, uh, there's no malacha in doing so, and it's not an issue, right? Blowing air is not a problem. So turning on a fan that blows air is not a result that is a malacha. Once again, if you believe that the circuit is bone, is building, then it is, fine. But assuming that you think that the circuit is not an issue, and many posts can believe that, that closing the circuit is not bone, is not building, then what you have here is electricity that was used to do something that in and of itself is innocuous. It's not a problem on Shabbat. So that's, that's one issue is the result, okay? Let's assume that the result is fine. What do you have left? Electricity itself. Is electricity itself, bamahut in essence, a problem? Some people would say, molid, you're creating something new. Some people say, uvdin dechal, meaning that it's not, it's something that basically is like what you do on, on a regular day. Some people would say, not Shabbistic, not the spirit of Shabbat. There are many things that you can say here um, that talk about the essence of electricity, but at the end of the day, right, it's not, it doesn't sound like it's a deoraita, like it's a Torah prohibition, all right? So what I'm basically saying is that if you, that with any electrical action that you do on Shabbat, those are the two questions you ask yourself. Is it an Easter result? And essentially, what do I consider to be electricity? Those are the two questions that you ask. Those are the two questions that any post asks. So let's come to the question of the computer, okay? Let's say I want to write on my computer. I've turned on my computer and I'm typing on Shabbat. What, do I, what have I done? So I've already said, is it writing, right? Have I created an Easter, an Asr Malacha? Is the result writing? That's one question, right? I've already told you that most posts can believe that it's not. Most Allahic authorities have told me that that is not an issue. Okay, Doraita, uh, at least not a Torah prohibition, maybe a rabbinic prohibition, but not a Torah prohibition. What about the actual lighting of the computer, turning on the computer? Those who believe that closing a circuit is a Torah prohibition will say that it's a problem. Those who believe that closing a circuit is not a Torah prohibition will say that it's a rabbinic prohibition and not a Torah prohibition. Okay, so I hope that that clarifies more or less the landscape with regards to these things. For example, the Chazon Ishu, I've already mentioned, believed that it was a Torah prohibition to turn on a computer. 
uh, Rav Yaakov Ariel, the rabbi of Ramat Gan, I believe, holds like him. Many hold like the Chazanish, but there are even more who don't. Rav Shlomo Zalman Arabach did not hold like the Chazanish. He felt that if there was no result that is a malacha, that is probably a rabbinic prohibition. My Rebbe, Rav Nachman Ezra Rabinovich Zatzal, Hareni Kabrat Mishkavo from Maladumim, also held that it was a rabbinic prohibition, not a Torah prohibition. If the result is not a malacha, that the actual use of electricity is not a Torah prohibition, only a rabbinic prohibition. Okay? Okay. That was the crash course, just to give you kind of like the landscape more or less for you to understand when someone approaches the question of what he's thinking about and how he looks at these things, okay? So now I'm coming to the question of journaling, okay? Once again, if I believe, okay, that turning on a computer is a Torah prohibition, I will only be able to allow it in cases of pikuach nefesh, in cases where it's life threat. If I believe, uh, okay, that's, that's clear. Same thing for actual writing, right? Obviously, for actual writing with a pen or a pencil, it'll be the same thing. It's a Torah prohibition. I won't be able to allow it unless it's in a situation where it's life-threatening, once again, because of the rules of Shabbat. Okay. Could I use a Shabbos pen in that situation? I guess it would be a rabbinic prohibition. We have to talk about what that would mean. Or... What about for those opinions that hold that using electronics is only rabbinic? Then you're only doing a rabbinic prohibition. Okay, well, now we come to another question. Are you allowed to do a rabbinic prohibition on Shabbat? Yes or no? Well, obviously, for in normal circumstances, the answer is no. You're not allowed to do um, a rabbinic prohibition. Okay, um, so then what about in a case where someone is sick? The classic halacha, okay, that everybody usually quotes is that you can do a dirabanan with a shinui, meaning you can do a rabbinic prohibition with a shinui. A shinui means like you do a, some, some sort of a change, like you do it a little bit differently than you usually do it in a less expert manner. So you, for, once again, if someone is sick, in order to help with their sickness, okay, they can, in order to help with their sickness, they're allowed to do a rabbinic prohibition, but it is best that they use a shinui to do it. It's best that they use some sort of a different action in order to get it done. For example, with writing, that would be, the example would be, let's say, um, doing it with the left hand. That would be a shinui, for example, okay? So rabbinic prohibition with a shinui. What about a Torah prohibition with a shinui? Same people allow that too. What about a rabbinic prohibition without a shinoi? Sample would allow that too if a shinoi is not possible, meaning if there is no ability, there's no possibility for a shinoi in the situation, and the only way to do it is just to do a, a rabbinic prohibition without a shinoi, sample would allow that as well. Okay? So once again, I've charted out more or less the landscape for you when it comes to the halachas of sickness on Shabbat. This is about physical sickness, yes? So if someone is physically sick, right? And he can do a Torah prohibition, but he's not, it's not pikuach nef, it's not, Torah, it's not life-threatening. And, and he wants to do a rabbinic prohibition. He can do so if it's with a shinoi. If there's no possibility for a shinoi, probably do so without a shinoi, according to many poskim. And to do a shinoi, even a melacha deoraita also might be possible according to many poskim. So therefore that's definitely uh, a possibility as well. Okay. Now we come to the final question that we have to ask ourselves before we can pass in on this, okay? Which is, are you sick? Which brings us back full circle to the first question that I asked, or to the first point that I made. Someone who has one of these mental disorders or mental illnesses, right? To define them, to recognize them as unwell is complicated. And here, I use after, once again, this is after consultation and discussion with the uh, many postkim. Here I use uh, what's called a term that I call functional consequences. I can't actually take credit for the term. It appears in the DSM many, many times. Yeah, you look at uh, almost any of the uh, mental disorders, you'll find a section that talks about functional consequences of any given disorder. Okay, so 
Functional consequences help us to define that the individual is ill on or unwell on a level that the halacha deems significant, okay? Now, I wanna be clear about this because I don't want people to make a mistake about what I'm saying. I think that with mental health, the real problem, the real disorder, the real unwellness is here. The person is suffering. The person is really, really suffering. It, 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 the, the symptoms are in the functional consequences, but they're not the cause and they're not the main thing. You know, what I really feel bad is that people are suffering so much inside. You know, and I, I, I want to be clear on that. But as a POSEC, as a halachic right, decider, we can't see into people's heads. It's difficult for us to see that. And on, in, on an individual case, if the rabbi knows the person well, they may very well be able to see into the person's mind and see how unwell they are. But on a cold case, so to speak, when a person just comes and asks a question, right, it's very difficult to know exactly what's going on. Of course, with all these cases, you have to talk about the history and talk to the therapist and all these things. I'm not claiming the rabbi can just make a, 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 a you know decision cold turkey. Anyway, he has to talk to people and, and get an impression. But it's difficult, like I said, to give rules without talking about functional consequences. Individual cases, maybe you can gauge it. But as a rule, we look at functional consequences. So what does functional consequences mean? It means that when I look at an individual, right, I ask myself, so how does this affect you? You say you're suffering from depression. What does it mean? Are you able to get out of bed in the morning? You're not able to get out of bed? Are you able to do the laundry? You're able to go to the store, buy yourself food, go to work, right? What, what happens over here? If there are significant functional consequences so that the individual basically um, is not doing, is not going through their regular routine, then that is a sign that things are very, very bad. For the individual, from a halachic perspective, I'm not talking for him. For him, you know, I'm not judging the person clinically. Halachically speaking, right? If I see that there are functional consequences, then I, as a rabbi, can definitely come and say, okay, this is bad enough that the person is considered a chole she'ein bo sakana, someone who's unwell on the level of ein bo sakana. Okay, that's what I can say in that situation. I can make that determination. A if that's so, right? As we said, he can violate Torah with rabbinic prohibitions, or maybe even Torah prohibitions if it's with a shinui, everything we said before. Okay, so now let's come to our discussion. If someone came to me and I understood that their condition led to significant functional consequences or could lead with a very, with a significantly high probability to functional consequences if I don't allow certain things, then I would allow for them to do a rabbinic prohibition on Shabbat, preferably with a shinoi, if need be, not with a shinoi. If I hold, and I do personally hold, that typing on a computer, writing on a computer, is a rabbinic prohibition, then I would say to that person, if you need to journal and you can do so on a computer, then that's fine. You can do so. Once again, person is suffering from depression, for example, depression as an, as an example, yeah. Significant functional consequences, meaning his routine is disrupted significantly by this, just like a person with a fever lies in bed, right? With the whatever, I don't know how to, I don't know your Fahrenheit numbers, but in Celsius, it's 38, okay? 38.2, 38.3, yeah? Person's in bed, okay? So he's, uh, you know, he's unwell, right? He's lying there um, and um, and uh, he can't function, right? So in that situation, we call him a cholesh and bosakana. What does it matter if the issue is a fever or it's a personality disorder? They can't get out of bed. They can't, they can't function. Does it matter if it's up here or if it's because the forehead is hot? It doesn't matter. Those things are the same. They put the person out of commission. If they're out of commission, they're a cholesh and 
As far as I'm concerned, it's clear cut. Not just me, Postkin that I've asked as well, you know, have said the same thing. And so in that situation, I would say to the person, you need to journal. Um, uh, for me, from my perspective, journaling on a computer is a rabbinic and you can do so. However, that was not good enough for many of the rabbis that I spoke to. Because many of the rabbis that I spoke to felt that these things were Torah prohibitions. Using electricity was a dangerous line to cross. And therefore, they felt uncomfortable being lenient uh, for individuals in these, in these scenarios, in these situations. And so I endeavored to come up with a different yardstick that I could apply to people that those rappers would also agree with. And what I did was I availed myself of, a di of another term that's called safek pikuach nefesh. And I'm sure you've heard the term. See, pikuach nefesh says, oh, this person is in life-threatening danger right now. Okay. How many therapists would stake their reputation and say, yes, right now he is. Sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes it would be more sure, less sure. But many uh, therapists would say, look, I'm not, can't tell you 100%, but with some degree of probability, right? So how do we know that the person is really in a pikuach nefesh situation? Luckily, we don't need to know. Luckily, the halacha tells us that in order to violate Shabbat, even with the Torah prohibition, you don't need to know for sure that the person is in a pikuach nefesh situation. All you need to know is that there's a doubt. Safek pikuach nefesh. You need to be reasonably certain that there is a doubt here that is worth pursuing, meaning that's strong enough that we're worried, that we're worried about this individual. That's all you need. And once you have that, you're good. Safek pikuach nefesh. So what I did was, and you know, sometimes I think that this was the most important uh, uh, part of my book is developing this category of safek pikuach nefesh, taking that category and translating it into mental health uh, uh, um, um, standards or criteria, okay? Uh, so what I'm gonna do now is describe to you what I came up with in terms of safek pikuach nefesh. Once again, in talking to clinicians, of course, I did not come up with my own. Uh, this was uh, this was uh, out of discussion with professionals. Um, this is what I what I believe uh, to be an adequate description of suffix pikuach nefesh. So let me give some examples um, of this. So example number one, I would say um, anyone, and this is this is an obvious one. Anyone who feels right suddenly um, on Shabbat that they're about to get up and and commit a suicidal act. Um, of course, may do anything that's the oraita to stop themselves from doing so. But I don't think that that's such a chiddush, right? I mean, once again, he just has a feeling, but he has a feeling, right? Of course, we're talking about someone with a certain history, but that person feels right now they're going to get up and they're going to do a suicide, they're going to commit a suicidal act. Obviously, at that point, I would say, pick up the phone, call someone, do whatever you need, go drive somewhere to someone, see someone, whatever it is that you need to do. No problem. You obviously should feel free to violate uh, uh, Shabbos, even with Torah prohibitions. Number one. Number two, someone who has a history of um, suicide attempts and he feels that there is a plan forming in his mind for another, another suicide attempt. So it's not like the previous case where he wants to get up and do it right now but he has a plan starting to form, okay? And he can um, avoid that by doing other things. And here I'd like to stop for one second because it connects to something I said at the beginning. Remember I said at the beginning that rabbis can't always understand what's the connection between the problem and the remedy. And what rabbis don't always understand is, and this I said before, the pain is here. The suffering is up here. The suffering is not the functional consequences. Those are just symptoms, but the suffering is up here. And when a person stews in their mind 
when they let the depression take over, the anxiety, when they can't see anything else that's happening, they need to get away from that. They need to get away from that mode of thinking. They need to get away from being involved in that. When they listen to music, they fill their heads with something else. When they go for a walk with someone, they're talking to someone. They fill their head with something else. When they're journaling, they're letting their thoughts spill out onto the paper. They're involved with something else. They're not running through the scenarios in their mind again and again and again about how they feel like this and how they feel like that and this and that and the other, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, with people with depression, a lot of times they don't feel anything, which is the worst part. Sometimes they just lose all feeling and then they're just empty inside. Um, and that, of course, leads to, uh, to suicide attempts and uh, suicidal ideation, all these things. So that's why music or journaling can be therapeutic in these situations. We need to take the person away from that mindset, from what they're thinking about. Have them think about something else. Have them do something else. Keep them involved in something else than what they're actually involved in right now. So that second example that I just said, someone with a history, right, um, of, of, um, of uh, suicide attempts, who's now somebody has like an active plan forming, okay, of what they're going to do. Immediately, they can violate Shabbat and do whatever they need to get away from that sort of thinking. A third category that I can offer you for Suffolk Pikuach Nefesh. People who are suffering from um, the kind of um, disorder that has suicide rates of over 5%, okay? And they're starting to have, uh, once again, active thoughts um, enter their minds. So once again, these people don't have uh, a history necessarily of suicidal ideation, but they belong to like a risk group, a high-risk group. Okay, they're in a high risk group. Once again, people with the disorder, I would say over 5%, right? They, uh, they suicide, okay? Someone like that who is now experiencing certain thoughts, certain suicidal thoughts must of course violate Shabbat um, and take care of it immediately, even if it involves a Torah prohibition, absolutely. So that's another example. Example number four, Someone with, let's say, a, a psychotic background or, uh, or psychiatric hospitalization, right, in their background. And now they're experiencing symptoms that they've experienced before, which will lead to a deterioration um, that will lead them to that again, meaning either to a psychotic episode or to a psychiatric hospitalization, okay? Uh, these things imply very, very severe, very significant conditions. And someone who sees that they're deteriorating in that direction and what they want to do now is to just um, um, get out of that, right? Um, by doing something, driving somewhere, calling someone, they can do so, absolutely. Please remember that on Shabbos, many times the individual doesn't have the ability to talk to someone, to call someone because no one's going to answer the phone. So that's why this list is so important. They need to know this in advance. I wanted to make a list to give a list that people can say, oh, okay, if any of these things are happening, I don't need to call a rabbi. I don't need to call anybody. I just need to know that I can break Shabbat and stop this thing from deteriorating further. Stop this thing from happening. You know, I can do this, right? So that's why this list is important. I'll give you another last example. Someone, let's say, who has um, a, a history of self-harm, okay? And now, once again, they're uh, uh, you know, experiencing symptoms that imply that, once again, they're deteriorating towards more self-harm, okay? Uh, again, it's, it's considered suffix pikuach nefesh, not pikuach nefesh, suffix pikuach nefesh. But suffix pikuach nefesh is enough to allow these individuals to violate Shabbat with the right. So I believe that these are good examples and they're important examples because even those individuals who would say that functional consequences is not enough, that those would only render a person a cholesh ein bo sakana, someone who is just a regular cholesh, but not a cholesh yesh bo sakana. And therefore, because we're afraid, oh, journaling might be a deoraita, using literacy might be a deoraita, they would still allow in those situations people to be utilizing whatever they need in order to get through Shabbat 
in order to get through this hard time, in order to do what they need to do to be healthy, to stay healthy. And that, to me, is supremely important. And it opens a wider, I would say, road for many people who are suffering to rely um, on these uh, sort of leniencies. I'm going to take a break here and look at the chat and answer some of these questions. Um, because I want to make sure that I get to everything. And uh, while I'm reading, you can also um, feel free to answer, ask directly to me or to, or to uh, Evie, who has been uh, forwarding me a few of these things. Okay, uh, here are some questions. Okay, number one, how, can, how uh, can I recommend to allow adult children of Bali Chuva uh, that journaling is okay on Shabbat. I'm not sure that I understand the question because I'm not sure what the relevance of adult children of Bali Chuva specifically. Maybe it's more difficult for them. Uh, it could be. You know, I would only recommend this, obviously, if the person is going through significant pain and suffering, as I've explained, right? And only, of course, um, after a clinician believes that this is the best thing for the person to do. Uh, so if that's true, if the if the if the if the mental uh, exp, if the professionals um, are recommending that this could really really assist, and the person is either suffering functional cancer or even worse, being a pikuach nefesh situation, so yes, absolutely, I would definitely recommend that. Um, people don't always agree with me, by the way. Like the patients don't always agree with me. I had an individual uh, who asked me. Or basically went to a religious therapist. A religious therapist thought that he should do X, Y, and Z, which was a little bit outside the person's comfort zone in terms of halacha. Um, as a result of that, um, the person came back to me and asked me whether I really recommended that he can do this. I said, I think he can. He asked me like five times whether I thought it was okay. Each time I said yes, and I also explained to him why I thought so, gave him sources, explained the background. Um, and then after asking me so many times, he came back to me the other day and he said to me, I asked another rabbi, he said, I shouldn't do it. I said to him, okay, you know, like, it's okay. I, I, I'm okay with that. I don't mind. Like, obviously he didn't want to do it. And, you know, sometimes that means something. Like if, you're, if your soul rebels, maybe that means it wasn't right for you, you know? So hundred percent, I'm okay with that. If he doesn't want to uh, pursue that, you know, that's okay. I thought it was okay, but anyway. Uh, number two, are other typically non-Shabbat activities allowed for these folks dealing with serious mental illnesses? The answer is yes. For example, listening to music, which I think maybe I mentioned before. Uh, that's another example. Or even playing music. Uh, definitely same idea as what I said before. And these are to save a life. So absolutely. Answer is also number three. Aren't these things to save a life? Some of them are. Yes, absolutely. But even when they're not, significant functional consequences could be enough. It's only for rabbinic uh, issues. Uh, Amy writes, for those who hold the Christian is rabbinic, what is the logic of prohibiting it? So I mentioned before, some say that it's molid, like uh, creating something new on Shabbat. Some say that it's what's called uvdin dechal, which is to do something that is very similar to things that we do on a regular day. Um, and there is like a separate category for that. And same people say that it's just plain old, not Shabbat stick. Um, to do not in the spirit of Shabbat. So there are different opinions about this, but none of them are, are Torah issues, of course. Like I said, they're all rabbinic. Um, Shuli writes the following. What about someone whose depression, anxiety, etc., is being successfully managed by treatment, including journaling? In such a case, their life may not be practically hindered. But if it were to stop their treatment for a day, journaling, for example, then they could, that could set them back and could lead to major difficulties, right? So prevention is the same as healing, I agree. In other words, it's not that uh, if a person's well, but you know, so then we can, he can stop doing it and it's fine. No, we wouldn't say that, right? Uh, obviously, if we wanna keep them healed, we wanna keep them on the path that they need to be. So absolutely. If it's also an issue of prevention, then it's just as important as uh, of, of prevention of deterioration, it's just as important as the actual thing. Second question from Shuli. Also, how does halakha deal with the inconsistency of mental illness? I, someone with depression can be happy from time to time while also being overall depressed. Those happy moments don't negate that they are suffering overall from depression. How does halakha handle such inconsistency? Good question, right? 
obviously with a lot of these things, we rely, I mean, I, I always say that I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in an easier space than the clinician, right? Because when someone comes to a clinician and tells a story, the clinician starts wondering, is he telling me the truth? Is he telling me everything? You know, like, uh, should I, you want me, maybe he just wants, you know, maybe to, to prescribe him some medication, you know, et cetera. Who knows what this guy is in here for? And a lot of times you find out, unfortunately, that people don't tell you everything and it's a complicated case and this and that. As a rabbi, I'm almost always uh, exempt from all that because who is, who's anyone, people come to me, who are they fooling? Themselves? God? Let's say they asked for a heter on Yom Kippur and they sold me some sob story. And it was a total, total lie. And I told them, okay, you don't have to fast. And then they didn't fast. I mean, who did they hurt? Who did they, it's, I'm, it's their problem. <laughs> I don't know. If you lied to me, you lied to me. I, what can I tell you? I, I don't have to actually check the story. In other words, you know, I'm, I'm like absolved from that to some extent, you know, from, you know, checking the person's story. So therefore, to some extent, there's a certain amount of trust that goes on over here with these questions, right? So if someone comes to me and he's depressed, right? So obviously I'll give them a header. If they're honest with themselves, They'll only use that leniency when they need to. And there is sometimes an inconsistency, but they'll know, right? The person will know. They'll know, they'll say, I'm good today. I'm well today. I'm okay today. And if, they, if they're honest with themselves, if they're not honest with themselves, they'll just do whatever, they, but that's between them and God. You know what I'm saying? I'm, not, I'm never afraid that someone will abuse a leniency, not because they might not do so. They, they might do so, but honestly, that's, that's their problem. In other words, they should know better. You know, and if they don't, then okay, then, then they don't. You know, what can I do about that? But I'm not walking around with, uh, you know, spying on people, seeing whether they keep my halachas properly or not. I hope that's clear. Um, okay, Evie sent me another question here. Are there other rabbis who would call these folks chole and maybe, and be comfortable with considering these leniencies? If so, is there a list that the rabbi has? <clears throat> and I could get a copy. Uh, okay, uh, I, I, I mean, yes, I have a list of rabbis that I've gone to, and I'm happy to name drop right here. Like, you know, it's like one of those fun things that people could do. Look who I hobnobbed with. Yeah. So, you know, I can, I can definitely name drop if you want me to. Um, obviously, they don't all hold the same way. So in the book that I wrote, I brought all their opinions about different things. And I, I wrote when they disagreed, you know, about different things. Uh, did a lot of them agree with the things that I said to you over here? Uh, I mentioned two opinions, right? Some who said that it was like you needed to be on the level of pikuach nefesh, and some said that being a chole is enough. Were there rabbis who agreed with the chole thing? Sure, absolutely. Do I remember exactly by heart who each of them was? Um, I can't that I do, but I can give you the names that I spoke to, um, and if you want, I can fish out, try to fish out the names exactly and tell you each one who said what. Um, but here are the names, okay? Just uh, I'm going to go quickly through them. Um, I can't promise to remember all of them. Uh, but if you count to 14, and I made it to four, if I made it to 14, then I'm good. Um, so let's see. Um, Rav Usher Weiss, uh, who I think you know, he's a famous Bosek. Uh, Rav Yaakov Ariel, he was the chief rabbi of Ramat Gan. Rav Dov Lior, he was the chief rabbi of uh, Hebron, of Kirat Arba. Um, Rav Nachumaz Rabinovich, I mentioned he was my rabbi in Maladumim. Rav Baruch Gigi, he was, he's a Ram in Haaretzion, the Gosh Yeshiva. Um, he's a Rosh Yeshiva over there. Um, Rav Yitzhak Zilberstein is a Haredi Posek uh, in Bnei Brak. Rav Eliyahu Abarjil, he's a Sparti Haredi Posek uh, working out of Yerushalayim. Rav Yuval Sherlow, he is a, uh, a more uh, like a modern Orthodox kind of a Posek um, in Sohar, if you know the organization here. Um, also Rosh Yeshiva. In, um, um, in Tel Aviv now, I think, actually, as Yeshiva is. Um, another Rav, Rav Re'em HaKohen, he's a Rosh Yeshiva in uh, Otniel, um, if you're in Israel. Um, <clears throat> I spoke to Rav Yudah Herzl Henkin, uh, maybe you know uh, his wife from Nishmat, uh, he just passed away, Rav Henkin, um, and I was lucky to uh, be able to speak to him before he, before he passed. Um, I was very happy that I got to do that. Um, Rav Yitzchak Shilat, my Rebbe from Yeshiva, also in Maladumim. Um, Rav Herschel Schechter, I assume you know that name, uh, from America. Um, I spoke to him at length as well. Rav Mordechai Willig, I assume you know that name. Uh, he's also from America and in uh, YU. 
Um, I think I pretty much got everyone. I was 13. I think there's another name somewhere that I forgot, but you get the gist. I spoke to a lot of people, all right? And it, uh, it took me a lot of time. Um, chasing rabbis around is not, not fun. Uh, but speaking to them is fun, but chasing them, less fun. Anyway, all good. So uh, those rabbis I spoke to, I tried to cover as much as possible because I wanted to make sure, why did I speak to so many rabbis, by the way? Uh, yes, this name dropping thing was really cool and fun, but that wasn't it. The reason that I did it was because that I knew that if I wrote a book, right, and then you guys opened it and you saw Psaac in there and you would say, oh, wow, this is Mutter. Who said it? Yoni Rosenzweig. Who is that? <laughs> uh, so I didn't want you to say that, okay? So what I did was I asked, I asked rabbis who you would recognize. In other words, to put it a different way, I wanted the book to be helpful. Okay, it would not be helpful if I was signed on these on all on all of it. Um, I did all the work, but I'm happy for other rabbis to sign off because I want people to believe in the book, and I, that's why it was important for me to get postkim also from the Haredi world and also from the American world, and as much as possible to get as many postkim as I could, because if you don't like three names in there, you'll like the other twelve. That was my thinking, and I hope that it's helpful. All right, Melissa asks. In the third examples where their disorder has a suicide rate of five plus percent, are they suffolk people specifically when having active ideation or even passive ideation? Once again, I wrote that. The answer is active ideation, okay? Um, and once again, I wrote this out of uh, my discussion with clinicians, okay? That's what they told me. That passive ideation doesn't necessarily uh, mean anything and wouldn't necessarily constitute an immediate risk, but that active ideation would okay that was my understanding but i uh, like i said if you find uh clinicians the clinicians say otherwise so i'll drop it i'm uh, you know not, none of this was my uh was my um contrivement it was uh, someone else um okay hindi writes what is the responsibility of rabbanim with follow-up care if someone is michael shabbos and now absorb the guilt and shame oh absolutely that happens a lot you know and um, I realized uh, after I wrote this book, and I haven't even published it yet, I've already realized, but I need to write another whole book about, uh, about philosophical issues or spiritual issues, if you will, uh, that come out of mental health. Because I get so many questions like that, you know? And that's exactly why I wrote this list of Suffolk Bikwach Nefesh, for example, and all these things. I want people to be, to feel that they are absolved of the guilt. I don't want people to feel guilty. I want them to take care of themselves. I want them to do what's good for them. I want them to be healthy. And if they feel uh, ashamed or that they're Mechal Shabbos, that they're not so then they won't do what they need to do. And it's sad for me that that's so, sad for me. I had a woman who came to me with, with uh, I think I told, did I tell you the story? I had a woman who came to me with DID, dissociative identity disorder. And she, she, and she told me that, uh, she wakes up sometimes in the morning and she finds on her phone evidence of things that she did the previous night that she does not remember and is not responsible for, in a sense. Horrible things as far as she's concerned, things that go against her religion, against what she, you know, and she feels so bad, you know, that she did those things and, uh, and she feels guilty and, you know, et cetera. Obviously things are against Allah. I can't even imagine, you know, that, is that a halachic question? A little bit, but it's mostly not. It's mostly a pastoral questions, question. It's mostly a question that, I, that you know, the rabbi needs to, yes, to follow up, to help the person, to make them feel okay, to make them understand that it's not them, that it's not their fault. You know, we need to be there for people. Absolutely. We definitely have a significant responsibility in that sense. Okay, another question from Melissa. If a person feels an urge to self-harm in a way that does not have risk or serious injury or death, are they considered suffering? A very good question and not a simple one. You're right. Like excoriation disorder or trichotillomania, hair picking disorder, um, that sort of thing, right? Some of these things are not nefesh. So yeah, you're right. In those situations, it's not so simple. Um, I'll admit, I don't have a very good answer, halachic answer to give to a person in those situations because it's not pikuach nefesh, not pikuach nefesh. They know what they're doing and they, they know that it's not going to be uh, uh, probably um, life-threatening. And so it's more complicated. I had a, a girl write to me with trichotillomania 
you know, she pulls out her hair. She, she took pictures of her head, you know, that she had like, you know, like bald spots, all kinds of places. People like that sometimes they think, oh, so they pick out their hair, like what's the big deal? What's the big deal? They can't go anywhere. They can't go anywhere. They can't show their face in public. They have to wear hats all the time or whatever, you know, et cetera. It ruins their life. I mean, it's it's not like uh, just a small thing. Sometimes it can really have like significant ramifications for the person uh, in those situations. Very, very sad. But, um, but it's not life-threatening, right? So what she wanted to do is she wanted, she said the only thing that can stop her is if she does something with her hands, like uh, sew or knit, things like that. You know, and that's that's like a really real Torah prohibition to do that on Shabbat. So it was actually very, very difficult to find um, something for her. You know, I'm trying to work with her, you know, we'll see what we can do. But yes, these are real issues. Sorry, I just have like four more minutes and I want to get to all the questions. So let's see. Um, how about eating trash? I mean, I'm against that, but I'm guessing that was not the question. Um, I assume that the question was eating trafe in order to get better. So if you're in a suffix, if you're in a suffix pikuach nefesh or pikuach nefesh situation, yeah, that's that definitely is something that you would do. And there's also chuvas that were written about that. So absolutely, yes, that's definitely a thing. Um, but I'm moving on because I want to get to all the questions. What if you're a rabbi paskin that you can use your phone instead of always calling your therapist? I'm never sure if I'm overdoing it in terms of how often I use it. I mean. Um, yeah, use your phone. I, I don't know what your situation is. This is like a very, uh, I mean, like, uh, but I think that you can use it. I mean, I, I think this person sent me an email at some point. So I think I'm supposed to remember what their case is. And if I remember what the case is, then I think I remember correctly uh, that yes, that they, that I don't think there's, I don't, it's fine. You can use the phone. It's a rabbinic prohibition. You can err on the side of caution, I think. I think that it's fine. Um, Evie sent me another thing here to clarify the anonymous chat question. Regarding Balachuva, the adult children are living in the home. The children are terribly mentally ill and have been institutionalized for the majority of COVID. The question is how to get the parents to allow these Shabbat breaking activities, to allow these Shabbat breaking activities once they return home. I see. They were institutionalized for the majority of COVID because of the mental illness. And now they're coming back home. And the question is how to get the parents to allow, uh, I see, because they're Bali Chuva, they won't allow it. I mean, they, they need a rabbi to speak to, right? They need someone who understands mental illness or you can put them on to me if you know these people, I don't mind talking to them, but uh, you know, it's just an issue of clarifying and, and explaining how important some of these things are uh, for those individuals. Susan writes, I am a first responder for a suicide helpline. Wonderful, Shabbos and Yom Tov. Um, what is the situation for myself as far as making notes are concerned? Um, whatever it is that they tell you over there you need to do, then I think that you need to do. So in other words, if uh, if making notes will help to care for that individual long-term, then yes, then I think you can do so. Obviously, if you think that that's not needed um, in a specific situation, then, then you should not do it uh, because it's not needed. But whatever you think is needed to help that individual, uh, definitely you need to do those things. Uh, Evie writes, just to clarify, right, I know I know those weren't your questions, 100%. Uh, Susan also writes, please can I have the name of the book and where to buy in Israel? I, I haven't, it hasn't been printed yet, I'm sorry, uh, but the name is actually Purim related, Nafshi Bishelati. I called the book and when it comes out, I'll be sure to tell uh, Evie maybe and she can tell everybody else uh, if that's okay. Um, uh, Shuli writes, Leave. All right, thank you so much. Fine. Thank you. Okay. Fine. Okay. Everyone says thank you to me. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, okay. I think my time is, is just about up. Right, Evie? Um, you can, anyway. you can have a few more, more minutes if you'd like, or, or we can conclude now. It's uh, your, your call. I mean, the questions are over. So if people want to ask, it's fine with me. You know? Okay. Let me see. There's one more thing in the chat. Oh, okay. <laughs> Does anyone, uh, I'll, I'll let people unmute now uh, and uh, ask questions uh, verbally if they like. So I changed the setting now. Uh, everyone can unmute themselves now if they'd like uh, to ask a question verbally. Um, I have a, a follow-up question, Rabbi, if you don't mind. Just yeah, please. Um, so you, in terms of people who self-harm, but there's not um, a risk of serious injury, I guess I was actually thinking of people who self-harm in a way that draws blood, even if it does not, I mean, in the cancer, there's no risk, but things that have a 
of, in a way that there really doesn't have a risk of putting in the hospital. Some people are very knowledgeable about how to be careful about that. But to the point where, not, I'm not minimizing trichotillomania, but to the point where they are still injuring their, I mean, that does also, yeah. where they're yeah. injuring, you know, through cutting or something like that. That's yeah. what I had. Yeah. No, I understood. I understood. I had a, okay. I, had a I, I had a woman, um, I guess, I guess you're right that, uh, that running to uh, trichotillomania maybe is the easy way. Um, but nevertheless, um, I had a woman uh, ask me a question uh, week and a half ago, I think it was. Uh, she's suffering from a whole host of things. Anyway, it doesn't matter. She, she had some body image issues as well. And she was going to the mikvah. She was very worried about going to the mikvah because of how much she despises and hates her body. Oh, um, I this last time. Mm-hmm. I think you spoke about this in the last class. I think you spoke about this in the last class. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm not, I mean, I, I definitely wrote a post of it on Facebook. So maybe someone saw that. Um, but but what, what, what I, I don't know if I talked about, did I, I'm not sure I spoke about it. Anyway, either way, uh, maybe I did. Okay. She, she, so yeah, that person, right? She took a blade with her to the mikvah. And on the way back home, uh, she started cutting at herself because of how disgusted she was with her own body. It was a terrible, terrible thing. Um, and she was cutting at her stomach uh, with the blade. And um, her, she, as she put it to me, her therapist was not impressed uh, with this behavior. And, um, and uh, she, she didn't decide not to go to a GP, whatever. Her case is complicated, right? I don't think that she was going to hurt herself in a way that was suicidal. I, I did not get that impression. I get the impression that she was just looking to relieve pressure, um, relieve her anxiety. Uh, you know, in, in some way that those things, that's what they do. She said to me, like, it felt good, right? She was trying to kill herself. She was trying to do something that it just released, you know, whatever it released and made her feel good, you know, in the moment. Um, the more she cut, the more good she felt. But I'm worried here about two things. Number one, that maybe it gets out of control. So on the, so you could say that that would be nefesh if it gets out of control. But if you're saying to me that no, you know, she knows what she's doing and there's no way that it would get out of control. So then the question is whether we look at the broader issues here, because this woman did not have just body image issues. She had a whole host of issues and body image was just one of them. So it could be that when we look at the entire picture, right? And we see that as part of it, we don't wanna encourage this sort of behavior because it encourages the illness. And therefore we can say, this is just the beginning. This will deteriorate, but it's truly uh, a case by case question. So it's hard to answer for all cases. Some cases you're right, would just not be classified that way. I mean, it's interesting because I, mean, I always understand cutting in that sense to be addictive and to say it can never get out of control. I am not sure if that's true. I mean, people may cut for years and then they'll need to cut more because they're not getting enough feeling from it. And they'll wind up actually, it seems to me like it's always if you had to make a general uh, statement about it. Right, right, right. Okay, very good. And is, that, is, that uh, my, is, that, is that my wrong about that? Or does that uh, seem logical? I, I, honestly, that's a question for clinicians. I, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm not sure, you know, what the answer is. You know, if there's someone here who wants to hazard uh, an opinion who was, you know, trained for it, I'm not myself, you know, willing to, to say for sure one way or another about all things. Um, I just I, want to... I'm not gonna... in, in my... oh, yeah, go on, go on, go on. Oh, um, you know, sometimes people may start off um, like cutting and then they end up with a very deep cut and then it's like, right. then it's dangerous. right, right. right. Right, hundred percent, hundred percent. That's what Michelle is saying. I, I, I hear it. I hear it totally. Maybe I think Susan wanted to say something also. Uh, no mistake. Susan, would you like uh, to say you're on, something? You're on mute. You're on uh, mute, though. You're on mute. Uh, shouldn't be. My own no, now you're fine. Now you're fine. Now you're fine. You're good now. We can hear you. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say from my experience that actually um, I do hear both sides of the argument when it comes to self-harming. Self-harming can definitely be a coping mechanism, um, which a lot of people find a very useful tool to relieve pressure when they can't cope anymore. 
but there is also the side of it where it can turn the other way around as well because sometimes people whose mental health deteriorates into a state where they have got suicidal ideation which is active um, and they've had the experience of self-harming they know exactly where to go and how to do it that's going to be absolutely effective so there is both sides of the argument with that um, experience that I've had um, and I've right. kind of worked with a lot of people in that particular mode so um, I don't think you can ever treat self-harming as something insignificant I think we always need to err on the side of caution when somebody is self-harming because it can go okay. wrong. Thank you. I just want to say one quick thing uh, you know which is I saw that uh, uh, Ozzy uh, wrote here a clarification for the trafe question uh, regarding metamtem halev. Um, eating trafe, right, and, and timtum halev, I, I can't go into the whole topic right now. It is a term that the Hatam Sofer writes in the tshuva that he wrote about, um, about um, uh, hospitalizing someone uh, in an institution where they'll eat trafe, and he basically allows it, but then at the end writes something about how, you know, like eating trafe is bad for your soul, you know, et cetera. So maybe we shouldn't allow it. There's a lot to talk about. It's not so much a halachic consideration. And so I'm not taking it into account here, but that's a longer conversation. Thank you so much, Rabbi Wesenzweig, for this very interesting uh, series. I hope to learn with you again in the future. And thank you everyone who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live and on Facebook. Um, several of you asked me, so I'd like to uh, uh, answer this question first. Um, you can uh, watch recordings of all of our uh, sessions uh, by going to www.drisha.org slash live. Uh, all the sessions are recorded and are uh, available on our website. Uh, we continue our spring program tomorrow, Monday at 1 p.m. with the third class in the series, The Halachic Process, A Brief History. And in addition, we have we always have many classes happening. So uh, by going to our website, you can find out more information as well as the registration links. Uh, our website is www.drisha.org slash classes. And I hope to uh, see you again soon at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha. Thank you so much again, Rabbi Rosenzweig. Thank you.